Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. Tom is still away. He's still in Europe for Eurocheapo. So he won't be able to join me for this episode. But I do have a special guest, an occasional contributor to the Bowery Boys, our very own Bowery girl, Tanya Bielski-Brom. Hi, Greg. Thank you so much for having me back. Yes, thank you for coming back. Tanya did a great job on two podcasts that we did before, the New York Yankees and the New York Marathon. This actually is a non-sports-themed podcast that I've invited you back for. Thank you so much. (laughs) I really didn't want to do the New York Giants. (laughs) You may be getting a call for that one, though. I don't think Tom wants to do the Giants either. My apologies to Giants fans. However, I did invite you here because today's topic is Ellis Island, the immigrant center that's located in New York Harbor, and one of the most well-known landmarks in the United States. And with the name Tanya Bielski, I come from a long line of Polish serfs, so I was a good choice to come in and sit in for Tom this week. And you actually had family members who really did come through yes, Ellis absolutely. Island, right? Um, my, grand- my mother's side of the family, the Winseks, came from Poland, but my mother told me it was actually not even called Poland then. Um, they came in between 1905 and 1910, were in New York for about a day um, before they got on the railroad to LaPorte, Indiana. And, and people to the Midwest, along with, along with my relatives and, in fact... Tens at- of millions. Millions of Americans yes. can trace their relative, a relative through Ellis Island. Well, 12 million people actually entered through Ellis Island while it was open from 1892 to 1954. And what's amazing is, is like if just 1% of those people went out and procreated, that's still millions of millions of people. Many of our listeners right now are related to people who came through Ellis Island. It's a symbol of immigration, both good and bad. We're going to be talking about its entire history, including tracing it all the way back to the very beginning before there were any Europeans at all. And finally, I have a riddle. What particular feature about Ellis Island actually makes it technically ineligible for our inclusion as an episode of New York history? We'll uncover that at the very end as we trace the lineage of Ellis Island. Ellis (laughs) 
Ellis Island is, of course, one of New York's many great islands. And like Randall's Island and like Riker's Island, it was named for somebody who really has nothing to do with its overall history. With its so, actual purpose. It's some, someone who came and went very quickly, let's just say. It's situated next to Liberty Island, which was also once called Bedloe's Island, but today is Liberty. Again, if you do want to visit Ellis Island, there's a ferry that takes you to both destinations for one single price. Ellis Island itself, the Immigration Center, was open from January 1st of 1892 until November 12th of 1954, and then it reopened as a museum in 1990. Though there were a few times here and there where people were allowed on, but it just it wasn't this nice, wonderful museum yeah. that they have out there. Now, the island was originally 5.3 acres. Yes, it was a speck of an island, really, compared to what it is today, and the Native Americans referred to it as Kiosk. K-I-O-S-H-K. Kiosk. Kiosk, or Gull Island. When the Dutch arrived, this island was then later known as Little Oyster Island because it was populated with many oyster beds. Yes, do you know, Tanya, exactly when that name came about? In 1628, there was a man by the name of Michael Powell... P-A-A-U-W, Michael Powell. He was a Belgian Walloon. He actually bought a lot of land around here, including Hoboken and parts of Staten Island. This got thrown into the deal. He called it Little Oyster Island. They would actually use it, of course, to collect and shuck oysters there. And occasionally people would even come out for picnics. Did you know that? Oh, no. A lovely picnic in the middle of New York Bay. They didn't have that skyline to look at, but I'm sure it was very nice anyway. So this little island, Little Oyster Island, was used as a hanging site for pirates. Called Gibbets Island, correct? A very romantic kind of view to think of all these like scary dead pirates hanging Hanging from trees. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But in 1785, a man named Samuel Ellis bought the island and he set up a tavern there for sailors. A strange place for a tavern, not a lot of foot traffic. (laughs) But pretty much after um, he bought the island, he immediately tried to sell it, um, as his family did. So he had the island. He was trying to sell it. Nobody, there was no takers until the federal government stepped in, I think in 1808. He died in 1794. It was still in his possession. So his family was still trying to unload this island, um, which was, again, like five acres. And the federal government stepped in. I guess they were getting the feeling that the British were going to come back. It's 1808. There were forts all over New York Harbor at this time. There was just this paranoia. I mean, there were forts in, of course, Castle Clinton and Castle Williams and Governor's Island. There was even a fort there, of course, on Bedloe's Island. So then the fort that they built here was Fort Gibson. Fort Gibson, which is named after Colonel James Gibson, who who had actually died in the War of 1812. So this was one that was built a little oh, bit. A, um, I did not know that. It was built a little bit after the war. But um, not, this fort never got used, right? No, it was never used. It was just sitting out there in the bay. So through most of the 19th century, then, it basically just... It sits around and there's, with not a lot of purpose, right? They do lo- use it as a munitions depot well into the 1800s. And that's where we have to take a detour from the story off of Ellis Island because, as we know, what the, the reason we're talking about Ellis Island right now is because it was an immigration center. Of course, people have been immigrating into New York for much of the 19th century. But did you know where they actually went from 1855 to 1890, that immigrant depot was at Castle Garden. We have a whole 
podcast about Castle Garden and Battery Park, and I won't uh, replay all the details, but essentially, Fort Clinton or Castle Clinton was again one of these forts similar to the one that was on Ellis Island here. It had been transformed into Castle Garden, a sort of performance venue, uh, a place where like Jenny Lind, of course, famously had her concerts. Um, They they feted the Marquis de Lafayette when he was in town. They had a, a sumptuous party here. And the very nice thing is when, if you are visiting New York City, you can actually, you will be walking through Castle Clinton on your way to the ferry to Ellis Island. So it's still standing, obviously. So what they would do in 1855, they closed Castle Garden. They decided to remodel it and expand it so that it would fit the needs of about a thousand immigrants a day we're going through, which would be small fry compared to later. Yes. But this was kind of, this was a lot. And where were most of those immigrants coming from? At this time, it was Irish German immigrants were the majority, but they were really coming from everywhere. Of course, the nationality would slowly change throughout the decades. Immigration, strangely enough, was not controlled by the federal government back then. It was controlled by the state. At this time, like more and more immigrants were coming in and the views of of what immigration meant started to gel and change in people's heads. You know, as as the populations of cities began ballooning, a lot of people felt that this just having Castle Garden here, like it was a little bit too open. I can only imagine that it was very easy for immigrants to kind of break free in this less controlled environment of Castle Clinton. What would essentially happen is that there would be a lot of what they would call runners. People would get off the boats, they would be processed, they would go through, and then they would basically be taken advantage of, like young women might be lured into a world of prostitution, their bags might be stolen, there might be a grifter there. So eventually the federal government did wrest control of immigration from the state's hands. They would do it by passing a lot of very restrictive laws. They would start, for instance, like you can't accept prostitutes into the country or Chinese laborers or convicts or anyone basically who was under contract to a third party. So basically companies couldn't hire all of these outside workers and ship them in. The laws also seem to be constantly changing, always in a state of flux, correct? Wildly in flux. It depends on what year you actually get into New York Harbor. In 1882, for instance, uh, they passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which is just something so ridiculous to think about right now, which excluded anybody of Asian descent. Which is remarkable considering they build most of the railroads in this country. It was part of the reason they thought that they were stealing labor from, you know, from those of a white complexion. And what was amazing about this is it would actually be on the books in, until 1943. I mean, there would be there would be ways around it, obviously, but this is still a pretty shocking law. Another big problem with Castle Garden, it was beholden to petty political battles. You know, uh, the city of New York would largely be Democrat and controlled by Tammany Hall, but the state would be controlled by Republicans. It would be used as a pawn. A lot of the people who worked there weren't really qualified for their for their positions, and the conditions of the place were just absolutely awful. So tell me, Greg, when did they finally get around to like realizing this wasn't working? Well, what happened first, which is no surprise, is the uh, is the press got on board saying, and Joseph Pulitzer, this is one of his many tirades railing against Castle Garden that there needed to be a brand new system so finally in 1890 the federal government finally takes over immigrant concerns in the country the state of New York spiteful at this because this, they were making money off of this actually spiteful at this whole thing said well then okay fine well then you can't use Castle Garden so what they do for two years from 1890 to 1892 they move into a building which is no longer there anymore it was called the barge office it was very close by the Castle Garden building and the headline of the New York Times at the time actually said barge office doors open poor old castle clinton deserted at last 
And so no love lost between the state and the federal government here. But then the government decides that... Hey, we own this island. Exactly. So let's use this island instead. But the building that's there now is, was not the first building that was there, correct? Correct. The new facility was built out of Georgian pine. It was a white, about two-story structure building. It looked like a hospital. It opened on January 1st, 1892. And the first immigrant processed was a young lady named Annie Moore from Cork, Ireland. And I'm sure she was probably, like, picture perfect. I'm sure they picked the right first immigrant to come off the boat. Absolutely. Um, She also was awarded a $10 gold coin. And to contrast it with what would happen later, she would be asked all of, like, eight questions. She'd be like, what's your name? Are you a polygamist? (laughs) Are you a laborer? And so, of course, she she was, I believe, 14 at the time. (laughs) So I I would hope she wasn't a polygamist or a laborer. Greg and I went to visit Ellis Island and there's a whole plaque to Annie Moore and there's this whole uproar of whatever happened to the $10 gold coin. It's like she probably paid her parents' rent. <laughs> she I mean, probably ate with it pretty um, nicely, hopefully. So. so this was 1892, but it's still kind of being run a little bit like Castle Garden was run. A little bit corrupted, not very well organized place. The very first month, for instance, which is kind of unbelievable, this sort of lax oversight actually allowed some typhus carriers to come into New York. And there was like a sort of a mini typhus outbreak uh, that very year, which that's not really spelling a lot of future success yeah, here. Yeah, they're going to want to control this a little bit better going down the way. A lot of people who wanted Ellis Island in the first place were looking at the f- initial numbers of people and there weren't enough people being excluded. Like, people thought that it still wasn't restrictive enough. On top of it, the very next year, 1893, there was a huge financial panic. Immigration actually went down briefly, but then it went back up just in time for a kind of a disaster to happen on Ellis Island. Well, remember how I said it was built out of beautiful Georgian pine in June of 1897? The building burnt down. All the records went Taking with it, pretty much, Taking right? every record with it. So immediately they were like, we have to get a better building. We need it to be fireproof. They never even discovered the cause of the fire, basically. There were a few sources who said it was a night watchman that worked there who went a little insane. That's the caliber of workers that were that were working there. People, people really weren't very trained. A lot of people probably should have not been employed there. But they were going to, they needed to rectify the situation. So they did. They hired the firm of... Tilden and Boring to come in and build a new facility. That would be William Boring and Edward Tilton. This was the heart of the Beaux-Arts period. And they were actually in a competition and actually beat out the likes of McKim, Mead, and White for this job. So this was actually, I mean, this was a very big deal. It was a federal building. It is a brick and limestone structure. Um, and New York City historian Barry Lewis spoke of how impressive the building is. You're a new immigrant and you walk into this beautiful building, um, sort of like an old European railroad station. Beautiful, large windows. Very impressive um, if you're arriving from a barge from the harbor. The price tag was $1.5 million. I mean, it really, it it is a very beautiful building. It's just, I can't imagine all the things that happen, all the millions of people that go through it. Well, there was, it was so crowded. I'm sure that people were impressed. 
I'm sure they recognized the beauty, but you couldn't really capture it as you were walking through it. They also had to add landfill. Um, this five point acre island had to be expanded for the structure. Oh right, it wasn't it wasn't even that big of an island. So they made it a little bigger using um landfill from New York City subway. It is fascinating to realize that most of the island is just stuff that was pulled up out of Manhattan and thrown here. And dumped there, basically. <laughs> Essentially. It opens in December of nineteen hundred, and on that day, just alone, they received twenty two hundred immigrants. This is a shadow of things to come for Ellis Island because the decade of 1900 would be one of the biggest immigration surges in history anywhere. 1907, in fact, was the biggest year. One million people or an average of 2,700 people a day came through there. In between the years 1905 and 1907, 3.5 million people entered America total because there were other immigration depots, but 80% of those people came through Ellis Island. So... Not surprising. There's a lot of overcrowding here. There would be a lot of buildings added throughout the years, but it would never be enough. And ironically, by the time they got enough buildings to really house people, people weren't coming through here anymore. When you go to Ellis Island, you'll see several other buildings onto the um, side of the building. There were the sanitarium and hospitals and things like that. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Before we jump into sort of the immigrant experience, usually when you talk about Ellis Island history, you talk about it from the point of view of the people who are actually coming through and getting processed. But stepping up a little bit, looking at the bureaucracy of it, because, I mean, that really it depends on who is running the place. And, and it was always changing, right? It, well, yeah, it changes quite a lot, and it changes from president to president also. That would sort of change how what certain rules would be enforced. One of the most important commissioners of Ellis Island was a man named, get this name, William Williams is his name. I love that. William Williams. He was an appointee of Theodore Roosevelt, but he would actually work off and on through Ellis Island through three different presidencies. Roosevelt, by the way, was very actively involved, at least during the early part of his presidency in immigration. You know, he was a New Yorker. Born in Gramercy, correct? Yes. I mean, he was born and raised a New Yorker. So he even swept through Ellis Island on a visit when he was president and he even intervened in a couple cases. He gave money to, uh, to a few people. He was interested in reform the whole idea of immigration, but he had to balance a lot of delicate viewpoints, which I'll mention here in a second. William, on top of it, Williams had to deal with graft and corruption, all the stuff that had just been building up in Ellis Island. I mean, his very first order was to make all the employees treat the people coming in with, quote,
quote, kindness and decency. Like he had to actually tell people to do that, which maybe leads you to believe that maybe they weren't being treated that way. So Williams and a lot of the other commissioners that worked at Ellis Island, they had to like juggle all these different philosophies of immigration that we're developing right now. The basically to what degree do you open the golden door to people? Like how far do you reach out your hand to people? On one hand, you had a country that was defined by like, the melting pot, a land that would be open to everybody. On the other hand, you had people who were afraid of competition, of corruption, of an overthrow of America even. You had immigration aid societies, immigration groups representing each individual country of where these immigrants were coming from. They would be support groups. They would help them along the way. They would find housing for them. They would find jobs. They were on the liberal side of things because they were afraid that all this increased immigration would separate families, would discourage good, hearty people from coming to America. They thought it would also promote race. What was happening at this time is the the makeup of who was coming over was changing. It was very Western European in the middle of the 19th century. But by this time, it was Eastern European. It was Italian. It was Eastern European. It was Russians. It was Jews. It was a lot of Jews. That disturbed a lot of the status quo. The restrictionists basically wanted to pick and choose Americans. Again, it's very race based. They didn't think these new immigrants fit the mold of the good stock of Americans. They were worried about legitimately worried about disease is coming over, also worried about the deterioration of the English language and culture. A surprising ally of the restrictionists would actually be the labor groups because they were, of course, afraid of all the jobs that they would lose if you had this new influx of people who could be cheap labor. Some of the criteria that these restrictionists really wanted people to be judged by for the longest time and throughout the course of Ellis Island they were wanting to push a literary test. You know, you had to be able to read in your own language. It was basically an intelligence test. They yes. thought this would this would be able to gauge people's intelligence. And to that extent, they would go further and actually label people as feeble-minded, imbecile. Like, this would actually be terms that they would use to judge people's intelligence as they went through. Another criteria, for a short period of time, immigrants had to actually have $25 on them or equivalent of $25, or also it would be considered public charges or, or people who would be, have to be taken care of by which the government. They did, which they did not want. They didn't want people who would be taken care of by the government. No, they would be le- they would be leeching off of the government. They wouldn't be adding back into it. During that $25 fee, they wouldn't have had it because every dollar they spent, they spent on that steerage ship. So they wouldn't have even come into the country with $25. So I mentioned William Williams, but there's a couple other notable names I want to bring up. There was Theodore Roosevelt. Secretary of Commerce and Labor, which oversaw immigration, and his appointment was Oscar Strauss. Oscar Strauss was a co-owner of Macy's with Nathan and Isidore. But did you know also that one of the immigrant inspectors that was there from 1907 to 1910 was none other but future New York mayor, Fiorella LaGuardia? Did you know how many languages this man spoke? He spoke Croatian, Italian. He was incredibly brilliant. He actually would later go on to be a lawyer and take on a lot of these Ellis Island inquiry cases. So now that we've taken you through the restrictions and the bureaucracy, let's actually go through a walkthrough. One of your ancestors. We'll, we'll, we'll Rosa, walk in their shoes. Let's take Rosa Tapa, who would marry my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather. She would have traveled from Poland, probably um, originally by mule and then by a very crowded train to get to a port city, probably in England, but any of the port cities that would have one of those stewardships. One of the things that allowed this mass immigration to happen was the invention of these gigantic steamships that could carry thousands of people very 
cheaply and these steamship lines like the Cunard line and the White Star who create these elaborate systems of having first class passengers and then like thousands and thousands of people in steerage kind of like I hate to bring it up the movie Titanic which of course was a ship that was destined for New York well I also think what's so interesting is that they actually bought round trip tickets or had to because if case they were rejected at Ellis Island this steamship had to promise that they would remove this person and return them back to their country. And they would be, and the steamship company would be fined if they were bringing people over who were not acceptable. Which brings me to, say, Rosa, or Rose, um, my distant relative who would have come over through Ellis Island. When she got to that port city, she actually would have gone through a first clearance, so to speak, a health check on that ship to make sure she was even clear to even cross the Atlantic and immigrate to the United States. Now, when she was on that voyage, of course, it would be a few weeks on the water. It, could be, it would be very disorienting, and especially if you were in those lower decks. Well, a lot of people would stay on deck as much as they could, and the pictures of people crowded on the deck are, you know, mind-boggling, if you think about it, or similar to the F train at rush hour. <laughs> um, well, sometimes they would... Like an entire family would come over if they knew that they had a, a sick member or a member that they thought might have trouble. They actually pulled their money together and they would get that person on as a second class passenger or they would even make a deal with a first or second class passenger to sort of bring that person with them to so get them through. The logistics of how this worked is this. As the ship approached New York Harbor, a um, federal agent would board the ship and kind of clear the first and second class passengers. The ship would dock on the Hudson and the first and second class passengers could disembark because they were free to go even if they were immigrants. Right, with little disruption really. They probably just had a, it was a cursory inspection. Grab a cab and then, you know, they're on the Upper West Side. (laughs) For the rest of us, uh, serfs from Poland, um, we would actually have to then board a barge or a ferry out to Ellis Island. And docking in the same place where the ferry docks today. So say you're Rosa and you're getting off this ship and you're taking all of your bags which are not Samsonites with wheels. They're baskets and they're trunks and your feather beds and your coats. And you're carrying them up the stairs and into the baggage facility and you leave your bags. It's the first thing that an immigrant would do would be to leave their bags. And every immigrant, they would have a tag on them with the number of their ship so that they could be identified later through the manifest. And then um, they would be instructed to climb the great stairs. And those stairs actually don't exist today. Um, so we can only imagine what that would have been like. Um, they would climb the stairs and they would enter the registry room, which really is where the meat and potatoes, everything happened in this mm-hmm. room. This is the room with the vaulted ceiling that we spoke about earlier. They'd walk into the registry room and immediately be tested for all kinds of illnesses and intelligent tests. And they were sort of were corralled off like cattle. And, you know, saying things like cattle is sort of like such a cliche today. But you only can imagine like different barriers up in this giant room to kind of snake the immigrants along on their journey. It looks exactly like cattle. The pictures of this are a little disturbing. And so they would stand in these lines for a really long time to get their physicals, correct? It was called the six second physical where doctors would ask people to disrobe right there in the Great Hall. In fact, in 1912, they actually had to hire female physicians because women hadn't been touched by men other than their husbands before this. Well, I mean, it would be disturbing enough. It would be very disturbing. For 
in any situation today, but especially if you couldn't speak the language, you and, were completely disoriented, and you were around people, you were around strangers. And you're coming from a country where police and people of official are the bad guys. They're the people who beat you when you're sleeping. These people with uniforms on, you know, if you're an immigrant, you don't understand that they're really trying to move the line along. Um, they obviously, they tested for trachoma, um, which involved a taking a button hook, lifting up the oh. upper eyelid to look for, it was a um, contagious blindness disease. They have an, ex uh, an example of one of these button hooks actually at Ellis Island and just one of the grimmest things you can possibly imagine. It's said that this is one of the, this is clearly the worst part of the whole inspection process that, that sometimes the eyes would hurt for a few hours afterwards. Yeah, having your eyelid lifted up by a piece of wire has got to be painful. When Greg told me about doing this podcast, the first thing that jumped into my mind was the Ellis Island miniseries that came out in like 1986, <laughs> starring Angelian and Liam Neeson. <laughs> and one of the that. characters had trachoma right. and they had to like smuggle her off the island because she was already in love with an Italian. There was a variety of different things that they were looking for. They were also looking for favus, which was a scalp disease. But that would be enough to get you excluded. And what they would do is they would all have a piece of white chalk and they would just write it on you. Write they would write um, on chalk on your coat. So E would be for eyes and PG would be pregnancy. An X would be for a mental illness. The mental illness, they would later have to go through a series of intelligent tests. Like one of the questions was, what's the proper way to wash stairs? from the top <laughs> up or the bottom down. And one of the immigrants answered, I did not come to the United States to wash stairs. Well, <laughs> I would have let her in right there. Well, you know what? And I don't know the answer to the question. I have no idea. What I, I'm such a bad housewife. You do it from the top down. I guess down, you do so it you from the top yeah. down so you don't have dirt. <laughs> but I don't know. One of the intelligent tests that they asked people to do was um, to look at a for people who are illiterate to look at a series of faces and which ones were the happy faces and which were the sad faces. At the very end in this registry hall, at the far end would be the legal questions. And that's where you would be asked questions like, are you a polygamist? Are you an anarchist? So as a result of all these tests and these questions that they would have to answer, I guess this is sort of a rounding over, over the years, but a total of 2% of, of people who came to Ellis Island who traveled all this way would then be excluded and would have to go back there would be like stories of like someone's grandmother who had a wart on her fingernail and would be sent back to italy um and they'd never see her again they would right. never see her again overall from like beginning to end the entire process could take about eight hours for the ones who were lucky enough to go through the inspection process they would be greeted on the other side by family members there was another staircase and you would go down the staircase and you might find your husband who had sent you less than one third of the immigrants actually stayed in new york city the rest of them you know, went on to populate the rest of the country. So this is essentially when it opened 1900, well into the 19-teens here, actually. Uh, there's still thousands of people coming through Ellis Island, but there are some changes to the country that are actually happening that would reduce immigration and, then, and would increase the restrictions that America actually puts on immigrations and thus leaves Ellis Island with essentially no purpose. Almost a symbolic start of this, uh, this whole thing, actually, is there was a huge explosion in 1916 that actually did a lot of damage to Ellis Island that we call it the Black Tom Explosion. 
it was discovered that it was actually sabotage from the German government that someone had come in there and ignited it. The explosion could be heard everywhere. It even shook Brooklyn Bridge, but it blew out all the windows here at Ellis Island and everybody had to be evacuated that evening. The distrust, the overall dis- American distrust of radicals and foreigners grew during this time, of course. During World War One, it actually detained up to 1,500 Germans here that they distrusted or thought were working for the German government. And this would happen again in World War II when essentially Ellis Island would become a detention center for Germans and Italians. And then even after the war with communist sympathizers. You see the transition of what the island's becoming. It's becoming a point of exodus to send these people back. There were always people being deported, but of course the numbers were very small compared to the ones who were coming in. And its latter period, it became essentially a deportation center with people like Emma Goldman, who was of course a very notorious radical in New York during this period of time and many others, there was, of course, a distrust of just regular immigrants, not even the ones that were being questioned or suspected. In 1921, America would pass a quota law only allowing a certain number of people from from countries to come over at any given time per month. And so you would have this absurd situation where steamships would be Would be waiting in the queue in the harbor, waiting for the first of the month so they could pull in, Exactly. At midnight on the first of that particular month, they would pull in with their immigrants and this would save these people's lives because they'd be first in line essentially. The American consuls in other countries were given power to inspect a lot of these people throughout the years and so essentially Ellis Island grew to have no purpose anymore. So eventually 1954 Ellis Island is closed completely because there just really isn't any use for it anymore. Closed and nearly forgotten. The government tried to sell this island because it was of course useless to them now. Um, They actually came up with some sort of inventive uses that they were going to try out for the Ellis Island. Philip Johnson wanted to create a sort of a natural memorial out there where basically you leave the building in a ruin, kind of like on Roosevelt Island. Okay. If you're in you know, the Renwick ruin out on Roosevelt Island, that might have looked nice and, and it probably wouldn't have offered anything to the American conversation about immigration if you just left it as a big rotting ruin. A one suggestion even wanted to turn it into the a national lottery center here on Ellis Island. What, for like some mega reason. millions? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like, you know, scratching. Yolanda Vega. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One developer even wanted to bid it and turn it into, quote, Pleasure Island, which would be like a resort and a convention center that you could go out there. What year was that that they wanted to do that? Um, This would be in the 60s. It was definitely in the 60s. (laughs) Definitely. Um, But eventually, Lyndon Johnson in the 60s did eventually give it over to the park system. But they just didn't have a lot of money to do anything with it. Um, So it sat there, basically. It sat there. I mean, during the 1970s, there was an African-American organization who began squatting on the land in sort of a political protest. And they thought they wanted to turn it into sort of an experimental black community, but nothing ever came of that. So the place just ended up being destitute and, and rotted and sort of falling apart. So then what happened? By the 80s... The idea of being an immigrant was the the whole immigrant experience was mythologized and massively transformed. We didn't look at immigration so much as like, well, you need to assimilate to become us, the Americans. But it was more like, we'll celebrate everybody's differences, and those can be American. So it was during this period of time in 1984 that Ellis Island was turned around very dramatically, thanks to, believe it or not, the chairman of Chrysler, one Lee Iacocca. That name sounds familiar, a little retro 
for you? It was one of those public-private ventures where they were raising private money to help save a national park. It was first to raise this money for the Statue of Liberty, which, of course, was refurbished and reopened. 1986? In 1986. And then, believe it or not, they raised so much money that Ellis Island was actually able to be opened two years ahead of schedule. They wanted to open it on the 100th anniversary of its birthday. In fact, they were able to do it on September of 1990. And what they had done, of course, is they had turned it not just into a renovation of the of the rooms and the buildings, but they had actually turned it into a museum for immigration. Many of those inspection rooms, for instance, are these are big displays where you yeah. can kind of see what they had to go through. And, um, well, the, the, and the actual renovation process is fascinating. I believe they had to pump hot air into the building. For a year. For a year to dry it out because, <laughs> you know, it had been exposed to the elements for so long. It was so rotted. If you would like to actually participate in Ellis Island, not just to go out there, but to see if your own relatives went through Ellis, you could go there and, and look up your family members. They have a program called the American Family Immigration History Center. You can also do this online. If you're out in the middle of the boondocks, boondocks, you can also go online. And check the ship's manifest, yes. right? Because that's where all the names would be written. Oh, and can I just clarify something? A lot of people, even my own mother, Elaine, was like, oh, and they changed people's names. They actually very rarely change people's they names never from the manifest. They people's names, really? They were, since they were working off the manifest, they're writing people's names down from the manifest. There's a lot of people who say, I was Stanislaus, and they changed me to Stanley. And that actually really didn't happen very often. So it's a urban myth. It's a very old old urban legend. And finally, I need to uncover our own mystery here that I mentioned. We're getting into the mystery, everyone. I'm so excited. At the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned that there's a component of Ellis Island that sort of excludes it from even being a podcast at all, because of course, this is a podcast on New York City history, when in fact, Ellis Island most of it is actually property of New Jersey. Over the years, as Ellis Island got bigger and bigger and more and more, more landfill, landfill, it crossed over into the New Jersey state line. Eventually, this thing went all the way to the Supreme Court, believe it or not, and they decided that the island mostly belongs to New Jersey and not to New York at all. Which is really stunning if you think about it. Actually, it offends us, us Bowery boys and Bowery (laughs) girls, but it really bothered former mayor Rudy Giuliani, who said, my grandparents, when they came over from Italy and they saw the Statue of Liberty and they came to this country, they were thinking, I am coming to New York. I am not coming to New Jersey. (laughs) He may have been overstating that they were coming to America. They were coming to America. No, he's feisty, that mayor, Rudy. That's that's Uh, Rudy. But part of it, the the buildings, is that the the historical buildings buildings are are New York, are run by New York. The buildings are still property of New York State, even though they are part of the National Park Service. Before we go, I want to plug a a book that just came out in the past month, which I hardly endorse. It is a history of Ellis Island. Um, It's called American Passage by Vincent Canato. He actually wrote a few years ago a book on Mayor John Lindsay, which was also really good. Thank you very much for listening to our epic on Ellis Island. Check out the blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, for a lot of pictures of Ellis Island of some of those immigrants. I want to extend my thanks to Tanya for coming with me on this voyage through Ellis Island. I greatly appreciate it once again. Greg, it was an absolute pleasure to join you again as an honorary Bowery boy. Bowery girl. And, uh, and no one wanted to hear me talk about this alone anyway. So Tom will be back for our next show, I promise. So have a great New York week. Whether you live here or not. See you soon.
Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details.